here's here's my thing. Um, you know, we'll start with all sorts of confessions, uh, personal confessions. I uh, have always had an allergy to postmodernism, and that allergy probably uh, led to my um, led to my not appreciating Rav Shagar, uh, because Rav Shagar seemed to be defending postmodernism, and I largely saw myself as um, as William F. Buckley said about the 20th century in general, I saw myself standing with thwart history shouting stop, uh, right, in terms of, in terms of postmodernism. Uh, and so, I, you know, I never really got Rav Shigar. I was looking about for something completely different to do at the end of this series of Shirim after, you know, after a week of doing nothing but pure halacha. Uh, and so I thought that it would be interesting for the first time to try and engage with Rav Shigar. The reason I thought it'd be interesting is because our whole perception of reality, what the nature of reality is, and what the importance of certain kinds of reality is, I think have been affected, or at least it's, pos- it's possibly being affected, by the way in which um, we live virtually, our social lives are virtual, in a way they've never been before. We're kind of living in a science fiction experiment. Right? You can imagine somebody you know, 30 years ago, right, imagining a plague world in which people are still alive physically, but they never interact with each other except except virtually. There is such a world in um, in Asimov's robot series, the uh, right the planet Aurora, is a planet right where people live, but they live in isolated spaces and they only communicate with each other by uh, by hologram or through robots. Uh, so it struck me as a fascinating experiment in terms of how we relate to the uh, to certain kind of postmodern ideas that we've actually gotten to live that world now. Um, so that's one, that's one thing. Now that plays out um, for, you know, for somebody who lives primarily right now intellectually in the halachic world, at least for this, for this week, um, the constant shayla that comes up is, what about creating various kinds of halachic sirufim, halachic groupings through, um, right, through Zoom? And now a lot of the objections to it, that you know, when people get into the conversation, the really good objections is that the technology isn't good enough yet. Uh, like, for example, I, I, my friends on listservs who are trying to organize group singing say that there really isn't a, tele, a, a video conferencing program good enough yet to have people sing in unison. You know, everybody, uh, you know, every online singing group sounds like a shul which, um, with poor talent. You know, the people in back aren't singing together, the people in front, right? everything, everything is offbeat. Um, but I think that you know, we have to face the reality that... Um, the technology will get better, and probably that this is not the last, um, you know, unfortunately, there's no reason to assume this is the last time that we're going to engage in this kind of, in this kind of reaction to a possible pandemic. Um, and so we really need to address the question fundamentally. And as you expect, there are people in the halakhic community who are celebrating, you know, now we can finally have Zoom and Yanim, and there are people in, you know, who are fighting desperately, not as many as I would have thought. I would say that there's a there's an issue that I have raised with a number of people um, who are in favor of Zoom and Yanim, which is you know, the importance of three dimensions. We don't have holograms yet. And it's really interesting to me that people are willing to go to Zoom without three dimensionality, which seems to me to undermine a lot of uh, past literature about the glory of the human form. Although, test case, um, somebody has now sent me a truva I haven't had a chance, haven't had a chance to, to look at yet. But um, so far, I've only heard of one truva about um, combinations to Mignon involving mirrors, which are also, uh, also two-dimensional projections of three-dimensional people. That's one thing. I wanted to I want to integrate into the conversation the question of 
how the experience of socializing virtually has affected our our sense of it, and whether you know whether that's just because of limitations of technology, if there are in fact such a sense, or not. Like say, for example, one model that um, rabbis tell me about is possible that um, that virtual gatherings work really well for Talmud Torah and don't work, and don't work well for tefillah. And the question of that's an accident of the technology or something essential about it, and talked about maybe we can reify that halakhically and say that you can create a minion for a seum, but not a minion for not a minion for davening and things like that. And um, another possibility is that it is that in terms of community, in the sense of shared spiritual space, it works really well for people who don't usually go to minion, but not as well for people who have an experience of minion that's central in the comparator. So I want to put those out there. Okay, those are. So in preparing for this year, uh, I reread, and I want to thank Steve Gottlieb for sending me the, uh, the copy of the article, uh, Rav Shagar's famous essay on uh, which he describes um, Neo of the movie The Matrix as a messianic figure and hackers in general as messianic figures. Uh, so, one of the, so a couple of things happened to me when I read this. Uh, one was that um, I realized that Rav Shagar was no longer cool in the same way he had been. Uh, and the experience I want to compare this to is, um, I remember years ago, my friend Rav Yitzchak Blau is Rosh Hashiva Baraita now, and his wife um, were teaching in Frisch, and they went to a, um, to, a Simon, to a Simon and Garfunkel reunion concert. I believe they're one of the ones in Central Park. And they went in and talked and told their classes about this and expected like they would be the coolest teachers in the world. And their classes, <laughs> like, they were 150 150 years old, Simon and Garfunkel. Right? That's what you think is that's what you think is cool. So my uh, my 20 year olds and 13 year old reacted that way to understand to hearing that I was reading an essay about the Matrix. Um, and it, that made it better for me. And that made you know maybe capable of dealing with a cigar because I wasn't struggling with the the cool new thing. I was um, what I was doing was reading you know a, a, a thinker who could be contextualized in the in the um, in in the uh, in, you know the light the light of light of history, and um, and I guess you know it made me less worried about you know by surrendering to postmodernism if I take him really seriously, uh, right? So that's one right. So that's one thing, uh, and then possibly as a result of um, not being bothered, right? Not being bothered by uh, by that, uh, I have to say that the essay was brilliant. It was a marvelously brilliant uh, brilliant essay. It was a beautiful. You know, it made me think that I really I should go back and study Rav Nachman. If Rav Nachman's stories are really like that, uh, right? You know, then uh, then you know that I'm missing that I'm missing a lot. Um, so what I want to do. Right, so now two kind. One is the question of whether the um, whether the nature of whether our perception of reality has and the importance of certain kinds of reality or not. Um, I would you know put it in stark terms. Whether our um, perception of the value of being embodied. Has changed as a result of the coronavirus uh, epidemic. Whether we, because that I think it might be fair to say, like that part of the the whole issue underlying whether you, you see reality as a prison or reality as or reality as a park is whether you feel yourself imprisoned in your body or you feel yourself living through your body, and that's you know a big deal of what the Matrix is about, and that's a big deal. Right? And I think that Roshagar talks about that. So I want to begin by I want to tell the Rav Nachman story the way I understand Rav Shagar to be telling it. And then I'll ask Rav Mayan 
to correct any mistakes I've made. You can interrupt and interject in the middle and correct any mistakes, correct any mistakes I make in the, I, you know, or contextualize it. You know, is he really? I'm less interested for this. I should say for this week in whether he's properly, he's properly conveying Rav Nachman and the way I have to, you know, acknowledge that um, that Alan Brill has, you know, has argued repeatedly that Rav Shagar offers what we would call, I guess, idiosyncratic interpretations of many of the people he cites in the philosophic world. And so, you know, he also cites Derrida here, and I'm not going to evaluate whether he's correctly, whether he's correctly presenting Derrida or not. The whole notion of correctly presenting Derrida, of course, is paradoxical, right? You know, it is cheating. You know, I love talking about this in one that, um, that years ago, a friend of mine was a determinist. Uh, and, um, and I told him that, um, you know, it's kind of dark. I said, you know, I don't really understand how people live as determinists as opposed to believing in free will. I think if I were a determinist, I would, you know, I think I'd understand why determinists don't commit suicide. Life is pointless. And he said, well, you know, you're right, but that's just the way it is. <laughs> right? So the same notion, right? Derrida, Derrida was asked the same question about why you write, right? If you believe communication is impossible. And his answer was, I'm a determinist. Um, right? So that, that's, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to bother if we properly understand, the ter- uh, probably conveying Derrida or not. But I want to, uh, but I want to try and present what I got out of this essay and his perception of, you know, why he presents hackers as hackers as uh, messianic. And I think that we're more capable of evaluating that in an age when, when hackers are no longer cool and no longer this mythical figure, you know, hackers are more people who are involved in, um, in creating false facts, uh, right? And, and so our, our, our celebration of the capacities of hackers to create alternate reality, I think will be much more um, ambivalent and much more nuanced than it might have been when Rav Shagar wrote. And then I want to compare the way in which his messianic figure relates to reality and in a sense creates a realm different than what is usually described of as reality with the way the Ishalacha does, uh, right, does a very similar thing. And I want to talk about and I want to learn about um, the advantages and disadvantages and relationships oh, among them. Of all, right, of, among those two, those two percentages. Okay, so let's start by telling the story. Um, here's, the, here's the story as I understand it. There is a king, um, and the king believes himself to be the least worried person in the world. Right, or actually, you know, probably I think the best way to frame it is the most carefree person in the world. It's probably the best way, but there's an, there's an inherent paradox in believing yourself to be the most carefree person in the world, because if you're conscious of being the most carefree person in the world, then you're already worried about, right? You're not just living in the moment and experiencing your carefreeness. You're already worried about somebody else there being more carefree, being more carefree than you. And this king, in fact, is worried about that, right? This king is worried that there might be somebody in the world more carefree than he, which is obvious who that person would be, which would be the person who isn't worried about being more, there's being someone more carefree than he is. And uh, just so we could have some traditional Torah at the very outset, there is a Gemara, I, I forgot, I didn't look it up, it's in, I think it's in Avodah in which Rava sends a korban to a figure known as Bar Sheshach. Uh, Bar Sheshach is a, um, probably right based on Yirmi, it's probably an Atbash for Babel. So that tells you that this interplay between Rava and Bar Sheshach is really a, um, is really a meeting between um, Jewish and Babylonian culture. And um, at some point in the, and he finds Bar Sheshach, um, you know, disporting himself in a, you know, as a voluptuary 
He's in a bathtub full of uh, filled with rose petals and a bunch of uh, and a bunch of let's say women of ill repute are cavorting in the bathtub with him. And Barsheshach says to Rava, "Do you have any as beautiful as these in your heaven?" Um, and Rava's response is that ours are more beautiful than yours. And the question is, in what way are they more beautiful? So Rava says, because we don't have to worry about the authority of the government. And Barsheshach says, what? Right, we, don't have to worry, right, we don't have to worry about Shubin Malchios. And Barsheshach says, what? I don't have to worry about Shubin Malchios. And at that moment, the messenger comes from the king and, calls Barshe- and pulls Barsheshach out of his roast tub-filled uh, bathtub. Now, what's really going on, I think, is that what you have here is the position, or there's the notion of being free from restriction, right? Rava says, um, right, is ultimate, right, is really the only kind of freedom that matters. And as long as you're under, as long as you're in any kind of hierarchy, um, right, it's not, it's not, and that's, right, that's a fascinating, right, fascinating notion. Nothing else matters. All that matters is the freedom from Shiva Malchios. And any illusion you have in this world that you have freedom is false because there's, right, because there's always Shibin Malchios in this world. So I think that's part of what's going on here in terms of, right, this, right, in terms of this king, um, right, and the, the notion that, you're, you know, that, you're, um, that you can be more carefree than anyone else. Okay, this king goes out and discovers an, um, somebody, right, an ordinary person, and uh, who is having a, right, having a, you know, a, a solitary party with himself, playing, right, playing musical instruments and eating and singing. And this person, it seems to the king, is likely more carefree than he is. So reacts the only way people, the only way people can, you know, if you're, if you're, um, if you're feeling insecure about your own condition, he reacts by trying to destroy this person's carefreeness, by imposing cares on them. Um, and everything he does fails because no matter what he does to try and make this person unhappy, right, destroy their, destroy, destroy, he asks them and the person tells them they live as a kind of fixer, fixer of all things and they always get enough money as a fixer of all things. Um, and no matter what the king does to try and destroy their employment uh, and make sure they don't have enough money to run the, the nightly party that makes them happy, they always find a way to, tra- right, to, trans- right, to, to transform it. The last thing the person does is, uh, ironically, is to support themselves by becoming a soldier in the king's army. But they don't, they're not quite an honest soldier because what they do is they take the blade off their sword and polish it and they sell the metal and with that right and rep- and they, they re- and he replaces it with a wooden painting essentially of a sword which he affixes to his sword blade so that he can go on pretending to be pretending to be a soldier while he, right while he has this party at night with the money from selling the selling whatever the special metal is that his sword is made out of um, the king catches on to this and attempts to expose him by ordering him to act as executioner uh, that night with his right, with his sword, the uh, the soldier protested he's never done anything like kill, killing it killed anybody's life. He doesn't want to act as an executioner. Um, so there's a whole separate conversation about using morals uh, in order to in order to protect your immorality. And right? he claims he has his pangs of conscience even though he's acting as a thief. Uh, the king the king calls him on it. So what the soldier finally does is he prays 
that right, he prays out loud that if the king is going to force him to act as executioner, may his, may his sword blade turn to wood. And of course, he pulls out his sword and like, guess what? It's wood. And now the king knows all, right? The king put him in this trick he knew, because the king caught him. But instead of the king exposing him, the king laughs and everything, and everything ends up Everything ends up happily. The king apparently is no longer worried about somebody being more carefree, more carefree than he is, and supports right now. Why? Why that is? That that's the part that Rav Shagar doesn't really deal with. Um, so Rav Shagar argues that in this story of Nachman, which he says is in the back, is a messianic background because it's told two weeks after the death of Nachman's son, whom he harbored messianic hopes for. So it's told in a in a time of great despair, um, and as an expression as an expression of faith. So um, Rav Shagar says that the king is God. Um, he does not, in the context of this interpretation, so far as I know, address the question of why God is insecure. Well, that seems to me like a, a profound theological issue with, uh, with this interpretation, um, or at least you know, profound theological question regarding this interpretation. And the, right, the soldier is the tzaddik, right? And the, and the metaphor of the blade is really all religious ritual, but essentially prayer. And here's the, right, and here's the underlying claim. So it says, so what is prayer? So we learned in the story, prayer is praying for something that is already true, but that everyone believes to be false. Right? Prayer, right? prayer is praying that your sword, which is in fact already wood, um, will be right, will become wood, and then it looks like your prayer came true, but actually, all your prayer do, did was acknowledge the reality as it right, the reality as it was. Uh, one, yes, right, yeah. one important detail from the story that I think is relevant to what you're saying right now is that because again, the king had all these different plots to try to stop him from getting money to be able to afford his feast, so one of his things was he made sure that as the soldier he wouldn't get paid, that's why he had the uh-huh. silver medal, but. The guy told him, listen, I can pay you double wages tomorrow, but today I have very strict orders. I can't pay you. So, um, so I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm pointing out, first of all, he, he was planning on actually buying the metal back from the pawn shop the next day uh-huh. once, once he got the money. So he didn't just pawn it and have no plans. So and I think that relates to what you're saying now about he's sort of, He's 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 ba- he know he has this future thing that he's really basing his security and his happiness on, is that after all it wasn't just based on nothing. The guy told him he would pay him double wages tomorrow, so he was relying uh, on that. That's interesting. I don't think Rav Shagar mentions that. Oh yeah, when he tells the story, right? So I have to go back. You know, you know, I'm more likely to skip things in Hebrew than in English. And I read it in Hebrew. Uh, so maybe maybe he summarizes the story. Yeah, but I think when he retells the story, he leaves it out, and that might matter. Right, that might be one of Rabbi Brill's. I mean, points. yeah, in the in the original story, which by the way was was only published in 1905. There's a whole other thing about when the story was first published and what are the manuscript history of the story. But at any rate, in in the story, also um, the way the king finds out is because he keeps going incognito and meeting this guy who has no idea he's the king. So uh-huh. he actually goes into his house and he says, "So," what, and he sees him again having a feast and being happy. And he goes in again and he says, oh, you know, what's going on? And then he tells him, well, you know, here's a, they wouldn't pay me today, but it'll pay me tomorrow. So I actually, I, I pawned the medal, and, but I'm going to buy it back tomorrow. That's, the king didn't even figure anything out. He just, he went in and the guy told him the whole uh-huh. Misa. That's how, that's how the king knew. So that's interesting. I think Rav Shagar includes the king going in every day, 
but I don't think yeah. he mentions this detail. Okay, so that has to be checked okay. afterwards. It was just too big to put it on the Makoros. So I didn't, I didn't put the whole story on the Makoros. Yeah. Uh, okay, so now the question is: So in Rav Shagar's world, what prayer does is prayer, right? Prayer enables the fiction to be regarded as reality. Right? The sword is right. He has a wooden, a painted wooden sword, and he prays that the that he, he prays that what that what everyone else believes is a metal sword will turn into a wooden sword. And so when it turns out to be a wooden sword, everyone says, right, look, a miracle happened, but he knows that a miracle didn't happen at all. Right? He knows that he knows that he's just acknowledging, right? He's just acknowledging the reality. So now I think this is what Rashagard does with it. I think what Rashagard says it says is the following. Um, what he says, I'll say that the key quote is he says that prayer is answered only when it's a joke. Right? This whole story is a joke. Right, the, you know, the, the, what the guy is doing, right? It's a very serious context. He's trying to avoid executing somebody, but fundamentally, what he's doing is making a joke, right? He's, right? He's pretend, right? He's setting up this whole scheme so that people will believe that his sword is currently a sword, even though the king think the king knows the reality, and he's making everyone perceive it. So Rav Shagar argues that that is a fundamental element of prayer, and here's how I understand his argument about prayer. He says is that um, I'm gonna try and make sure I formulate this right. What he says is that the um, the person who truly right the person who truly prays understands that this world is an illusion, and so the desire to want something to happen in this world is really just a desire right is really just a desire for painted swords. It's not really right. There's really there's really nothing about this world that is real, and if you truly pray then you understand that this world is an illusion. And that's where he brings in the Matrix, right? Where the, the character Neo in the Matrix is living in a world that appears deterministic, right? And that's part of the illusion for Shagar of this world is that we live in a world that appears deterministic. And so it seems like, right, it seems like there are, uh, right, everything, everything happens because something happened before and all the science is true. And... The only thing, right, and you can't really, he thinks, ask for miracles in the context of a deterministic world. That's a contradiction, right? What you can do is, right, what you can, what you can do is expose the illusion and say, there is no determinism in this world. Every, all the appearances of this world are fake. That's what miracles really do, right? Miracles say that there's no, miracles say there's really no restriction on what should happen next. There's no determinism. There's no causality. The world, right, the world is, right, the world is whatever God wants it to be. And so, the, so now the 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 mashal, or the or the mashal is in um, in the matrix that you know, human beings, as you find out at the end of the movie, I'm hoping I'm not killing this for people. Human beings have been captured by aliens, and they all and we all live in a completely virtual world, and therefore our conceptions of the possible are completely restricted by the rules of this virtual world. Now the rules of the virtual world are not exactly the same as the rules of the physical world, um, right? And the more skilled, the more skilled programmers are capable of are capable of you know, of making themselves live in this in this virtual world. You know, as avatars, they can have superpowers, they can have all sorts of things like that, but they're still bound by the rules of this world. They're imagine right? And then comes along Neo, and Neo is the one who realizes that. There are no rules in this world because it's not real. 
uh, right? This whole world is an illusion. And so whatever he conceives of can happen, right, can happen in this world. So Roshagar says, okay, so Neo, right, he describes as the hacker, right, the person who is, the person who understands that there are no rules to the virtual universe is the Messiah, who will free us all and, right, will make us all recognize that the, um, that the physical, that the physical deterministic world that we live in, which we might also extend to our spiritual realities and believe that what we can do next is solely a function of what we could do yesterday, as opposed to believing that we have absolute freedom to recreate, to recreate ourselves. Uh, so as that, that's ultimately, right, ultimately what um, the reason that postmodernism, as he understands it, is a profoundly religious thing. And he makes it a really clear point at the end of the essay, he says there are people who think that postmodernism can lead to religious revival because they think that people will be terrified of complete freedom. And what postmodernism has done is enable us to believe that, you know, as we now know, we don't, again, we have a darker vision of it, that, you know, that there's no truth other than that which is constructed by, by, ma by mass belief. Um, he said that's a terrible way to construct religion. Religion shouldn't be constructed out of fear of the lack of any fixed points. Religion should be, struck, should be constructed in celebration of the lack of fixed points because true religious belief is the, right, is the, um, is the realization that there is no causality in the world because the world itself doesn't really matter. The world is just an illusion. And if you truly believe in God, then it's true. You know, God can save you. God can send a miracle. But all sending a miracle is, is, right, is getting people to recognize that the, sword was really, that the sword was really painted wood all along. It doesn't actually change anything because there is nothing. The only world that matters is the, is the spiritual world. That's my presentation of, of Shagar's position. So now I'll take, uh, Ramaya, what do you want to, what, what do you have any comment in regard to that? So I, I don't know the I don't know the essay by by Rav Shigar that you're referring to right now inside, so I can't assess that. You know, um, you know I think there's a lot of I, I wouldn't read this the Rav Nachman story in that way. I mean, I know you said that that wasn't you know you're not being done on that point, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking more. Of, I'm just going to think more about what you said right now. Uh, okay, so you know I'll push other people right. I know they've got Rafi. You were raising your hand. Yeah, go yeah. ahead, Rafi, because you find Rav Shigar attractive, I think, right? That's uh, yeah, right? I like Rav Shigar. Good, you know, and I, and I know when I go to Malay Gilboa, there's right, there's right, there's the uh, the broken luchos or every play, every makom in, in Malay Gilboa. Oh, wow. the presentation of it not being cool is probably a slur, a slur on a whole, on a whole, on a, on a whole Orthodox um, subculture. So go <laughs> ahead, tell me, tell me what you like about this, Rafi, and where I got it wrong. Oh no, I'm not here to criticize. At all. I actually just wanted to ask you a question, which was, sure. um, like. Uh, where you said how like uh, the realization within prayer of like understanding that really the world is an illusion and I was thinking about like how does that play a role in terms of like the question of like um, my sense of the world being deterministic having being related to sort of like um, whether or not uh, being sort of related to like my actions, whereas sort of like the illusion set, like the sense of illusion and sort of dissonance is sort of related to the fact that like, um, in a sense, I still have free will in my mind. Um, or is it just, or is it like beyond that sort of capacities? Like you have to be really skilled to know that you have free will. 
Um, so, I, right. So let me let me. I'll try and take that in a couple of ways. I, I think that what he's saying, and again, you know, this is, you know, doing, you know, you know, I think there are some thinkers. I usually use Ayn Rand as an example, which will raise all your hackers, you know, who read one essay and think they know everything about a whole thing about a thinker, and that doesn't always work. Uh, you know, you have to you have to have context. Uh, you know, say about myself that uh, was an important lesson for me. Uh, that once after Rav Shechter gave a shir on Erevin, uh, like I went up to him, and you know, and he presented certain diagrams. And I went up to him and I said, but Rebbe, there's a much simpler explanation of all those diagrams. And he listened to me and he said, I said, Shachter, right? And he said, and he said, you know, you're right. That's a better explanation of those pictures. But the Chazanish has a lot of pictures. <laughs> I didn't know the other pictures, <laughs> right? So, that, you know, it was a weakness in the shear in that, you, you know, the shear present, you, the shear, you know, gave it as, as if you had all the evidence that was enough. But on the other hand, you got to know that the Chazanish has lots of pictures. So I'm, you know, so for me to talk about Rav Shagar, when my familiarity with his, with his larger, works as minimal is, um, is, is scary. But here's what I, I think that if I were just taking this essay, what I would say is he thinks that you have a great deal more freedom than you generally, than you generally do. Um, but he might think that you're free. He might think, now this would be putting him in, in the context of Sedeca Cohen and that, and that whole school, you know, which might just be unfairly playing, putting together all the people who are popular nowadays where they didn't see themselves as related to each other in any way. Uh, Ratzaduk, the one idea I know from Ratzaduk, right, also you know, a dangerous thing, is that there is no free will in, right, in your physical choices. The only free will is in your mind. Right? So, right, that's Ratzaduk. Right? So, if you think that the physical world is an illusion, it makes sense to say, right, that all, right, that the, no, the notion that your choices in the real world are what matter is not, right, is false. All that matters are your choices in the, right, in the world of spirit. Um, Okay, right. Does someone else want to say something? Um, okay, I don't. Um, yeah, that's helpful. I think. Uh, okay. Yeah, I was. I was sort of just asking, like, what? What do you think? Like, um, like to me, it's interesting to think about, like, the distinction between sort of like our psychological choices uh, and how that has to do with prayer versus like what we think of as our physical choices. So I think a really interesting question to ask here is whether we wish to perceive ourselves as being as free as, let's say, Rav Nachman, as I'm arguing Rav Nachman wants us to see ourselves. Is that a spiritual good necessarily or not? So I'll tell you the way I often think about this. Chesterton, in the, in the first, I think, it's in the, in, I think it's in the first of the second volume of the Father Brown stories. Uh, Chesterton talks about it, what I think, believe is a, is a real Catholic religious exercise, which is always struck me as very powerful and also terrifying. I'm not sure it's right. So he, they asked Father Brown, for those who don't know, Father Brown is a Catholic priest who functions as a detective. Uh, how is it right now, you know, they're asking, what's, what's your secret now that he's published you know, at, least one, at least one major volume of short stories solving all these issues? What's your secret? And what he says is what I do is I imagine myself in the place of the thief. And this is a, you know, it's, a, it's really an exercise they engage in. I imagine myself in the place of the thief till I get to the point where the only difference between me and the thief or the murder, whatever it is, is free choice. And the choice, right, and the, the thief makes, you know, the thief uses Bechira that way, and I use my Bechira this way, but now I can understand exactly what, exactly what he's doing, right, because I can think exactly like him. And the only thing at the end is I make that Bechira. And the point of that exercise for Chesterton was for everyone to recognize that they are really no different than the sinner, except for the choice they made in that moment. Right, that's the, and the counter exercise is to say that the whole goal of a spiritual life is to build up habits. Um, right, I think that you might see Rav Dessler, right, 
arguing that way, right? The point is to move your right. You have everyone has a nikudala bechira, but you move your nikudala bechira, right? In certain ways, so that you certain things are no longer options for you. So I think that's you know that's part of the um, part of I think the challenge about whether um, whether this is an attractive notion, which fundamentally believes that your relationship to your body is illusion. Right, you know, and right, and right, that doesn't matter at all. What matters is what matters is right, are the ways in which you conceive of yourself, and the choices you make in your mind, and your body is is much less is much less relevant. Okay, uh, other comments about that? Steve, do you want to say something? No. Okay. I'm good. I'm in I'm in between things right now, so I'm just I have comments afterwards when I re-listen to this, but for now I'm okay. Good. Okay. Good. So now I'll, I'll so now I'll shift to the one thing that I have to contribute here, uh, which is uh, which is a paragraph a paragraph from the Rav. Um, I'll you know put in the autobiography that as opposed to Rav Shagar, you know, who I would say I have, you know, I have mildly struggled with for some for some time, uh, the Rav has mattered to me since I was a teenager, which was a frightening a frighteningly long time ago, uh, when I was uh, certainly before I was in college. Because I remember it, I think that the first time I read Yishalacha, for some reason, was in a summer camp. I had the same experience that I think almost everybody else did at that point, which is I read about four to five pages of Yishalacha until I hit the point where there's Greek. And, you know, once I hit the point where there's Greek, in Greek letters, right, I just gave up. Uh, but before you get to the Greek, there's what's called the long footnote, um, which, is, you know, which for, for many of us was like the central statement. Of the Rav, in as the place where the Rav, uh, you know, fairly sharply. First of all, a couple of things. One is, so you can stop making fun of people who only know Tanakh, uh, you know, only know Tanakh because of Gemara ritual context. The Rav talks about um, Psalm 23 as that 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 song we sing at Shalashudas, uh, and he says that people who, right, that people who sing who, who, who sing, you know, he makes me to lie down on green pastures and think that's what religion is, are completely wrong. And he's very harsh. He says, you know, we have a, we have a word for that kind of religion. We call it Christian science. But uh, really, really, for really religious people, this is an illusion. Right? Really religious people live it, you have a, a stormy and turbulent, uh, a stormy and turbulent religious life. Um, and in a sense, you know, if you were, you know, the little bit I know about Rav Nachman, right, it's sort of an, an anti-Rav Nachman in, in celebrating the turbulence as opposed to seeing it as some as something to be you know to be endured and overcome um but so you know but i've always i have been you know reading and rereading the rav for you know for basically all my adult life uh had different phases there are periods when i found you know when i experienced myself as rebelling against the rav you know this can't possibly be true and then uh often after periods of rebelling against the rav i suddenly discover myself and discover that no, the rough really meant what I thought all along, <laughs> or it changes my mind. But more often, I find the rough meant what I thought all along. Uh, we're in one of those periods now, where after a long period of struggling with the rough about something, it turns out that the rough always agreed with me. You could be a little bit suspicious of the, you know, that the rough turns out to agree with me as often as he does in the long run after we fight, we fight for a very long time. Um, and the passage that has been the focus, um, you know, really, really, um, you know, I, I guess like you know, probably the text that I come back to. More than any other for 30 years, is the passage in which the Ishalacha seems not to care about reality. So I want to read that passage with you. I'm going to share. I'm going to share my screen, and I'm going to read that passage um, with you. Uh, we're going to read it in the um, in the original Hebrew, 
there is a uh, you know an official translation by uh, Professor Kaplan that you're all welcome to uh, to read afterwards. Um, but I want to read it to you in Hebrew, and I'll translate it as I go along because I think that gives you a better sense of how I understand. Okay, here's what he says. When many of the ideas of halacha have no parallel in the right in physical reality um, right, or social reality um, as it appears, right? There's just you know there's just you're studying the halacha, and it has nothing to apply to. The Yishalacha is not worried or bothered about this at all. Right, the thing that he longs for, he doesn't yearn for, the, for making halacha uh, actual, right, for making halacha be practiced in the physical world. He's interested in the ideal construction that was given to him at Sinai. And this lives, right, this endures forever, right? And he quotes, right? So the Gemara has those three examples. You know, some of you know that I, you know, that I spent a lot of this, of this year writing articles and giving shurim about the many ways in which that may not, those, those positions may not, um, may not represent halacha as generally understood, shall we say, but we're in the Rav's universe right now. Right, so Yishalacha has absolutely no, right, there's no, no concern, uh, let alone pain, about the, the, the fact, right, the fact that many ideal constructions never gain, right, never come to physical reality, or never meet Gashem. What would it matter whether these halachic ideas ever come to ever come to reality or not? Yesoda right? The fundamental core ideas, and here is obviously playing off the beginning of the Rambam, uh, right? Where the Rambam talks about yesoda yesodot of right of philosophy is that God exists. Yesoda yesodot v'amuda machshava hilchatit is not hahora'a l'mase. It's not practical halacha. Ela kviat halacha yuni, but rather the fixing. Right, you know, meaning the 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 um, creating making static, right? The um, the halacha, right? The intellectual halacha, right? Establishing what that what the intellectual halacha is. Right, that's why many of the of the greatest ishe halacha um, are trying to avoid the practical rabbinate. And they become fellow travelers amongst the people who are afraid of Hora. Right. So here is the Rav's you know, apology, pro vita, father, grandfather, that kind of thing. Right. That the reason they didn't issue psakim wasn't because wasn't because they were afraid. Right. This is parallel to Rav Shagar's claiming that we should, that our our celebration of postmodernism should not come out of fear but celebration. They were fellow travelers among those people who Hora because they weren't Yirei Hora. They just weren't interested in Hora. And if necessity, which should not be, um, which should not be uh, despised, compels them to act against their desires, against their wills, and to issue practical halachic rulings. This is just a small, right, a small, insignificant thing. I think it's from Professor Kaplan's uh, translation. Um, that the Yishei don't focus on it. Ha-halacha, the loha ma'aseh, halacha and not the action. 
the ideal construction and not the real construction. That represents the true yearning of the Isha Halacha. Okay, and this is for those of you following along at home, this is page 31 of uh, Isha Halacha, and it parallels page 23 to page 24 of Professor Kaplan's um, translation. Okay, so now the question is what is this about? Um, right, what the 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 Ishalacha Rav tells you all the time is is a realistic person, so he's not going to right. So he can't share uh, Rav Shagar's notion that the that the world is an illusion. Now that's it's a challenge here because uh, all the rhetoric of Ishalacha is Platonic, and so it's very easy to suggest that. And this is what I always thought, and I think it's still true, but not as true as I thought it was, that the Ishalacha and you know, is the theoretical physicist, that's what he says, right? The theoretical mathematician at, who lives in a platonic world which believes that the physical world is just a shadow of the world of ideas. Right? So there is in that sense that the physical world is not reality, which is parallel. On the other hand, he never denies the... Um, Everybody the significance of the choices we make in the real uh, we make in the real world, uh, even though even though it's true also that the fundamental argument of Ishalacha in many ways is that um, tshuva is really important because tshuva enables us to recognize that in the spiritual world we are free of the tyranny of causality. Right? Tshuva is an anti tshuva is an anti causal notion, and all of Ishalacha is about freedom. Right, Ishalacha has has true has true creativity, and therefore true. But here we should be here. Now here I'm going to introduce the one word that I think is the contribution I have to make the conversation. For um, for Rav Shagar, as I understand it, and as I'm presenting in this essay, the purpose of getting past the illusion is to achieve freedom. And to become Neo, and Neo has no rules at all. Right, Neo can do whatever he wants. Um, and he can right, he controls the whole universe. For the Rav, the purpose of recognizing right, the purpose of recognizing um, the um, of overcoming the tyranny of causality is autonomy, which is not the same thing as freedom. But autonomy is the capacity to make your own rules, which is very different than the capacity. To right, the capacity to live in a world in which there are no rules. Right, the whole the matrix ends with Neo recognizing that in the artificial world he lives in, there right, there are no rules whatsoever. And the Isha and this is where you know my my latest reading of the one I came with two years ago of the Rav comes in. Uh, I think that the Rav argues that the Isha gets to be a participant in the making of the rules that he is bound by, because he is bound by God's rules. Right? God gives the Torah, and the Torah, right, the Torah sets out rules, but the Ishalacha becomes a creative partner in the construction of the rules that he, that he lives by. Um, now, he's not interested in Halacha Maaseh, because Halacha Maaseh is, right, being Moreh Halacha Maaseh is really telling other people what to do. And Ishalacha is not interested in power. And so long as the decision is made 
so long as the, even if other people tell him what to do, as long as they're telling him what the rules that he participated in requires, that doesn't bother him at all because he's not interested in freedom. He's interested in autonomy. He wants to live by, he wants to live by rules that he has, that he is a partner in the creation of. So that's the idea that I wanted to, um, I wanted to put out really that, you know, that the, the conversation that would happen if the Rabbi Roshagar walked into the, uh, right, walked into the holodeck is whether the ultimate human um, goal and the, the sense of freedom that religion is supposed to give you, or the sense, right, the sense, is it really, a, is it really religion is supposed to give you freedom or the religion is supposed to give you autonomy? Um, now, I don't think, I think that the, um, that the Rav would agree with Rav Shagar's critique of people who want to, right, who want rules because the alternative is anarchy. Right? The Rav doesn't think the, the alternative to freedom is anarchy. He thinks the alternative, the alternative to autonomy is an anarchy. The alternative to autonomy is tyranny. Right? Um, and, you know, we could try and construct, you know, construct you know, Hobbesian ver- versions of the spiritual world as well if we, if we wanted to. But that's the, that's the idea that I, want to, that I want to put out one, right? That there's a fundamental, uh, fundamental nafkamina in their worldviews as to whether ultimately what you want is freedom or autonomy. And I want to go back to the, um, to the, to the original question, but both of them um, essentially move the, the fundamental locus of spirituality away from doing things. Um, right? They're, right you, know, they're, you can imagine, right? You can imagine you know, their religious worlds being perfectly happy if you could somehow, if you could somehow have freedom and just be and just be a, a soul in Rav Nachman's shape. Or just a, or just a, um, a, a mind in the Rav's world. If you could just be that, that would be fine. Right? If the problem seems to be, and it's a paradox that all such thinkers have to deal with, is that even as you say that true freedom is spiritual, there doesn't seem to be a possibility of freedom unless you're unless you're embodied. And you have to explain to why is that? Why why is freedom why is freedom located with being physical? Even though the irony is that it seems like the physical world is determined. And the metaphysical, the metaphysical world is not, um, and yet angels don't have free will in most versions, right? In most visions, right? You know, we can go read Paradise Lost, and uh, and see if we figure out how, right, why angels, why angels have free will, and you can build the whole philosophic notion about whether you know it, whether it's sensible to ask the question of whether God is either free or autonomous. Um, but that seems to me that seems to me a a, a paradox that has to be addressed. Um, the way in which you know, as I say, the two the two you know, avatars, I guess you would frame that, would be Rav Tzedek, that I mentioned earlier, who believes means that in the real world there is no freedom at all and yields the result that real avoda takes place only at night when you're dreaming and you're not making conscious choices at all. And Rav Lichtenstein has a marvelous essay that I think is the paradigm of, of a certain kind of Yishalacha thinking where um, Rav Lichtenstein argues that Really, haosek mitzvah patrim and mitzvah should apply, right? The theoretical position dealing with the stira in the Rambam that on the one hand we hold that in practice haosek mitzvah patrim and mitzvah doesn't apply to Talmud Torah, and yet in one place the Rambam says it does apply kol shikain by Talmud Torah. So they're all the halachic distinctions as to when and where. Rav Luchensi's understanding is that fundamentally, um, Talmud Torah should be override all other mitzvah. It should be haosek mitzvah patrim and mitzvah, but there's something about the nature of Talmud Torah. And the way in which we regard it, that would be undermined if opportunities came to fulfill it 
and we didn't fulfill them. It would, right? So the way Rilfensky frames it is it would be a chisaron in our Talmud Torah if we didn't do mitzvahs when it came up. And therefore, those mitzvahs doesn't apply to Talmud Torah because, that, because it would weaken the nature of Talmud Torah if we were to say that. But ultimately, you could imagine a world you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you are a brain in a vat and you're just studying Talmud Torah all the time and opportunities for mitzvahs never came up. So for Lichtenstein, why would you want to, ever want to stop learning Torah? Right? So both of them, um, both of them you know, put the locus of religious life in, in, in an imaginary world, so to speak, not in, not in a world of the, the world of the mind, not in the physical world. In the physical world, and the question is, is that really a, a good thing? So we'll give, I want to give another analogy to try and think about this, uh, which, which relates to the whole Zoom question, which is about Hilchos Shabbos. Uh, so my friend Rabbi Dov Linzer and I have done a number of uh, joint public conversations about uh, Hilchot Shabbat and the future of Hilchot Shabbat, which you can find on YouTube. Um, and, the, and the distinction usually comes down to this. Um, we both agree that Hilchot Shabbat nowadays, uh, even more so than in the, the time of the Gemara, are Hararim Tzuli and Basara, right? There are their mountains hanging at the ends of threads because Pretty much a lot of us know that if, at least if you accept Rosh Hashanah Zalman, who I think is compelling, um, although you know, Rav Asher Weiss has made a nice try in other ways around it, but I think he's posting like the Yerushalmi against the Babli, which is not the way we work. Um, really, we don't have a basis for banning electricity on Shabbos. And so really, we could, if we wanted to, um, you could imagine a halakha in which Shabbos is fundamentally irrelevant in experience, right? Shabbos is no different. Shabbos is no different than the rest of the week because most of the things that matter to us are, um, are accomplished electronically. Rav Moshe was worried about this, and there's a certain extent that's true. Forget Shabbos on electricity on Shabbos, Shabbos clocks. Rav Moshe fought Shabbos clocks, um, even though he didn't have a halachic argument against them uh, because he thought that the experience of Shabbos would be destroyed if we could make everything happen. Uh, we could make everything happen that way. Um, so... Rabbi Linzer sees this as an opportunity. You know, we should we should start thinking about what we want Shabbos to look like experientially, because the Lamatet Melachot are probably not the way. You know, they don't have the same social significance they did back then. And my argument is no. We have to find a way to make the Lamatet Melachot, Lamatet Melachot, relevant again. We have to find a way to define them in ways that will make them relevant. And Rabbi Sasser Katz says, you know, the the ultimate, you know, pushing it the other way. And he says, no. What we need to do is we need to ban accomplishing the Lamatet Melachot even virtually, right? So if you're playing a video game, you shouldn't be allowed to light a fire on the video game <laughs> because, right? Yeah, you know, so whatever, however you live, however you live virtually, you should live virtually the way your physical body would have to live in, right? Would, ha- would have to live in the physical world. And so that way we've, right, we've shifted our reality, but the, um, and the Halakha applies now to our uh, virtual reality and not to our actual reality. So that's, so I want to, um, I want to, I guess, you know, and I'll, Turn, turn to you and ask, you know, ask everybody on first, anybody else's comments, um, about how... So this, is, this question is coming up for anyone dealing with halacha now, right? Trying to figure out to what extent are we comfortable treating our virtual lives as real? And I think that's really, if you want to, let's say, if you want to say that you can construct a minion on Zoom, right? I'm not dealing with the technology of that. I've given Shurim about this all week and I'll give more Shurim about it next week. But the, suppose you're asking the question, independent of technical argumentation, is it a good idea or not? 
And so one argument is, yeah, because that's, right, that's acknowledging a very important aspect of our experience and one which is freer. So like one of the, right, one of the arguments being made for Zoom and Yonim is that um, you have a position that's um, in, that in various places say that you can join a minion even if you're in a different space. How different a space is Machloket? Because you're showing your face. And showing your face is an important ideal, right? Uh, Ravroni Neuwirth uh, pointed out that the Arach HaShulchan says that the, right, uh, says that the Svara for showing your face, making you part of Minyan, is that the, that Minyan is about Hashra at Shechina, and the, the, um, and the face is the fundamental aspect of Hashra at Shechina, and because Kikaran or Pnei Moshe. So now we've said, so what if you, what it, right, so if a virtual showing of your face should be the same. And what I wondered is, but let's think about this. What if you don't have to show, you have to show the projection of your physical face, if this argument is really true, or, right, and that would mean that physically, you know, that this, then I have a, you know, there's a weakness in it that it's a two-dimensional projection of a three-dimensional object. But what if we say that, you know, people's real lives are online and they could use their avatars. Are people gonna be willing to say that you can use, right, if you wanna, you know, work in the context of emotions true, but as long as the avatar, you know, mirrors your actions, right? What is the, right? Why does the appearance of your face, why can't you present yourself as, you know, as younger than you are if you really feel that way? Why can't you, right? Why can't you, right? Present yourself, whatever it may be. So that's, right, it seems to me that this is, that we are being forced to, um, to address the question of the extent to which we think embodied reality is a central aspect of religious life or just an accident that happens to be the way in which for whatever reason the world is set up to enable us to engage in freedom. But if we can abstract it, if we can find a way to get past the illusions, uh, maybe that's better. And maybe it'd be perfectly fine if we lived in a, uh, an, online, uh, an online life. And given that, right, to what extent is, it, you know, is the, the goal to celebrate freedom, for example, that right? we can say everybody can appear in the way in which they feel at that moment. Right? That would be uh, you know, an ultimate free vision of it. Or we could say that, no, we have, you, know, you have to construct a new personality, but that personality has to be that's be predictable and bound, right? And, you know, and, and whatever you do, you have to intend, you have to intend it to last and you could have much more, what I would say is a Rav vision than a Rav Shigar vision. All right, so those are the ideas I wanted to put out and I'll give it to Rav Mayan now and then um, I'll stay for as long as people want to make questions, right? At, uh, make comments or ask questions. Uh, thank you. I mean, the, the one big thought that I'm having is that I think that for between Rabbi Nachman slash Rav Shigar and, and Rav Soloveitchik, one of the really central issues has to do with um, whether you locate freedom in the realm of intellect and the realm of, of intellectual contemplation, sort of contemplating wisdom, you know, like you said, the Platonic model, or in the realm of, of the will. And uh, for a lot of what is in, um, a lot of what's in Rabbi Nachman and, and in some parts of Rav Shigar is there's more a sense of the possibility of the absurd as being a revelation of the freedom of the will. Whereas for Rav Soloveitchik, that would be a kind of breakdown of the possibility of the freedom of autonomy, which exactly comes from being able to plug into and understand the truth of the conceptual system and conceptual reality of Torah. So, uh, you know, Rabbi Nachman said, for example, there was this famous, of course, there's a famous classical debate in medieval philosophy about whether God can do something which is intrinsically impossible. So can God make a triangle that has four sides or whatever? 
So there were a lot of rationalistic philosophers who said, well, no, God can't make a triangle that has four sides. But the, that doesn't take away from God's omnipotence because it's, it's, not, a, it's not a lack of your uh, omnipotence to not be able to do that, which is in, by definition impossible. The reason I mentioned this example is because Rabbi Nachman is on record as specifically saying, I believe with complete faith that God can make a four-sided triangle. And there are many other parallel statements like that in Rabbi Nachman. So there's a place there where, even though, of course, he has lots of things about contemplation and about contemplating wisdom, it's not like that's not a theme in Rabbi Nachman, but there are, there's this kind of rebellious sense of the possibility of how the absurd opens up a realm of freedom. And I, I think that's a very key thing of trying to understand how that becomes not nihilistic, which is obviously one of the things that's to be concerned about in postmodernism, but how that can, how that sense of the absurdity that is, is, uh, you know, there's a close, you know, there's a, there's a kinship between, you know, Kafka and Rabbi Nachman and as many people have discussed and that kind of question of trying to understand how that absurdity can be something that opens up and someone can see as being actually nourishing for their spiritual life rather than undermining of it is a very key uh, issue, I would say, in general. But the last thing, the other thing I would just add to that is that the, the, the sense of the absurd also has to do with a sense of humor and a sense of limitations for Rabbi Nachman. So I don't think that, um, you know, in this particular story or other things in Rabbi Nachman, of course, there's lots of places where it sounds like Rabbi Nachman is talking about his almost unlimited powers. That's undeniable. Anyone who knows anything about Rabbi Nachman knows that that's very true. At the same time, there's also many, many other things where Rabbi Nachman talks about and jokes about and whatever about all kinds of places where he run up against, ran up against all kinds of limitations. And that is not denied in, in, uh, in, in the spirituality of, of, of Breslov and in the teachings of Rabbi Nachman. So I think that's really important to, to say. It's more like, instead of saying, well, here are these limitations, and I don't think Rabbi Nachman's worried about a deterministic universe. I don't think the world appears to him to be deterministic. But I think he is worried about uh, a despair-inducing appearance of the universe and of life. And I think that um, you know, he finds a freedom to, to transcend the possibility of despair. But I don't think it's about actually escaping... Uh, the world or the physical or the body. It's more about escaping those things, both, both intellectually as much as physically, that appear to be despair-inducing or appear to, to cut off the possibility of hope or meaning, something like that. Uh, okay, thank you. There's, a lot, there's, there's, there's an enormous amount to talk about. I hope we'll have opportunities to uh, talk about it again. Uh, the things that, you know, that you know, I want to put in just as ways of, of thinking about future conversations. Um, I think absurdity is a, is a core part of any 19th, early 20th century philosophy. Everyone has to deal with the notion of the, of the absurd. The question is, what is it that generates the absurdity? Um, so for the Rav, I think it's mortality that generates absurdity. And so the, the, um, the Platonic worldview enables you to participate in something that is eternal, as opposed to mortal life which is right, and I think that's. Whereas I don't think it's mortality that that generates the that generates the absurdity in Rav Shagar, and I don't know if it does in Rav Nachman. Um, the other thing I would comment: this is you know just just listening to you, right? You know, it seems to me that the way Rav Shagar understands it, Rav Nachman feels those limits because he's not yet Mashiach, right? But the real Mashiach would have unlimited would have would have unlimited powers, and so 
right? Acknowledging his own limitations is not the same thing as acknowledging the necessity of limitations. It just means he hasn't gotten there yet. And, you know, he's looking for Neo. And right? that's where Rav Shagar's interpretation of the story is that his son was supposed to be Neo. Um, right? You know, and, you know, and, and Rav Nachman is whoever, the, whatever the name of the guy is who recruits Neo. And, uh, right, so I, I, I'll just put that out without any evaluation. I think that's, uh, I think that's that, there. That, that last point is a much longer conversation. It has to do with the, the shift from Rabbi Nachman from the imminent messianism of the mid, uh, of like 1805, to I'm just going to tell stories which are clearly all messianic, but most of which don't end. And he's like, there's more to the story, but I'm not telling it. So one way of saying that is that you can see he's always pointing towards this place where it is going to be fulfilled. And the other way is that the messianic secret becomes the unfulfillment of the messianic secret. And I think there's a lot of evidence. Uh-huh. That's interesting. You probably have Ariel here for that, for that uh, conversation as well. Uh, I would think that Ariel would like that, would, would like that, inter- that, uh, that interpretation. That would be my sense. Okay, terrific. Does anybody else have, have comments or questions that they'd like to? Yeah, uh, I have a question. So sure. I guess like, I'm thinking, how does our validation of the virtual community um, change the way that we treat the virtual community? Uh, like whether or not it, it I meaning whether or not it is really real, the, the, the way that we treat it, I feel like affects the way that we might decide uh, how to possibly about it. And I guess like the thing that I'm thinking about is like, um, for people who really need a sense of community um, and for whom like I think that I'm um, like not having a sense of community is affecting their mental health like being really isolated um, like how does the halacha change if their only way of connecting to the real world is through uh, you know virtual re- through a virtual space um, and like that kind of changes the way that they're like i feel like for them in particular the halacha would be different i guess okay so let me try and take that on you know way too briefly but uh, you know, there are things that i'm that, that i'm glad of the question because i want to totally malamed for example right said that virtual reality is not reality at all but there are people who can't live in our reality the way we have it and so halacha it right so you're entitled as opposed to, this is the way I'm interpreting him, you're entitled as a posik to pretend. Right? So Ramalamad essentially says about Kadesh Yatom is, you can say Kadesh, I'm not evaluating now, you can say, really, you can say Kadesh Yatom as a Yachid, just you shouldn't because it's not, it doesn't really accomplish, it doesn't really accomplish Kedushat Hashem, but it's not really Usr. And therefore, but he said, so, but people, it doesn't work for people psychologically if they don't think there's a minion, even though they could say the words. Now, a virtual minion is not really a minion, but since they're not doing anything else or anyway, if they, if they said it individually, why don't we pretend that it's a minion? Right? That's, essentially, that's essentially, as I understand it, Rav Malamed's position. Then there are other people, right? Rabbi Katz has argued that, no, a virtual minion is a real minion. Right? Um, you know, and up till now, you know, if I were to extract, up till now we've been living in the illusion that the physical bodies are what matter, but really all that matters is the connection among souls, and the connection among souls can happen without the body. Maybe it's even better because we can get rid of uh, we can get rid of eros if we if we if we do it that way. Now there are all sorts of interesting questions that um, you know that my wife asked me, like you know, so what's a mechitza? 
if you have to show your face, Tafka, right? <laughs> so, right, so that's a whole, you know, and other people have commented, you know, you know, sort of, uh, you know, um, self-consciously that uh, when they dive in, you know, that when they dive in a virtual minion, it's purely, you know, especially if they're not trying to put halakhic things, so it becomes totally egalitarian, right? And that's exactly true, right? Because it's a, um, it enables you to, right, to ignore the factors that would require mechitza, perhaps, in a regular, right? So I think that that's, I think there's one attitude which says that, which celebrates our, the removal of spirituality from the body. And there's another attitude which says, no, right, that's, that's really, the, the halakha is focused on our being embodied, but you know what, there are people who can't live with it. Um, and then there's a third possibility, which is where I tend to locate myself without making any halakhic positions, which is that halakha prefers us to live in a world where they're, right, where they're our bodies. But we have to recognize right now that we're not. And then the question is, how do we acknowledge how do we acknowledge this loss, right? That, you know, that we don't, that really we should be getting together and being getting together is a wholly different thing. And three-dimensional, three-dimensional experience is uh, and an experience where you can, where your moving shifts your, right, shifts the way you see other people as opposed to on a screen where if you move around, the, the screen doesn't, read, what you see on the screen doesn't change, right? As opposed to moving around the person where you see different, right, where you see different things. So is there a way in which we, in order to, have halakha in the world we live in, right? This is part of the parallel of the conversation of Lindsay. So I don't want us to, you know, say, okay, you know what? For now, right, we're going to ignore all of halakha when it comes to davening because halakha doesn't apply to the virtual world, right? So that's right. So maybe, right? So I think I would, you know, to the extent that I have a sympathy, it's it's the um, it's the <coughs> construction of an acknowledgement that we that as a spiritual community <coughs> we are not living embodied lives right now, even though individually we're still embodied, and yeah, and if and if I, you know, so the framework that I would think about halacha in is that, in addition to um, what you point out correctly, is that there are lots of people who um, who just can't live in this world, and they, you know, and halacha maybe is necessary for them in certain ways, and that's uh, you know, and and kaddish to me is a locus, you know, for some people this is a, a golden opportunity. Kaddish has been blown out of proportion; it's been you know approached magically, and so the you know the the capacity to get people to understand that the proper way to, to give honor to the relatives or to raise the relative stature in Shemayin is to give tzedakah and learn Torah and the mechanical recitation of something in a language you don't understand uh, right, once in a while is not very helpful. So some people celebrate this. Yay, we finally get to point out to people that, uh, right, that the, the spiritual world they've been living in is an illusion. And they have to, right, other people are desperately sad because Kaddish has been this incredibly powerful moment and now people can't have it. I think that's also a great thing to uh, a great thing to struggle with. Uh, yeah. Okay, thank you, Rafi. Thank you. Yeah, that, that helps me kind of place it also, like place the existential halakhic piece into the philosophical terms. That's helpful. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you. Are there other questions or comments? Okay. So I uh, thank you, Ramayan, very much. Uh, this was fun. We talked about trying to find a way to do this more formally, and I'm glad that we got to do it, you know, at least a, a first shot. Thank you, Rafi, for your contributions as well. Uh, thank you, everyone who listened. Um, and uh, I haven't put out a schedule for this week yet or for the rest or for the future at all, but I hope you, that you'll pay attention to uh, to the CMTL Facebook page to look for right, what hopefully will, there will be um, some shurim this week, not, I think, anywhere near as many uh, as last week. And um, perhaps we'll find ways to have these particular kind of conversations in some kind of structured context, whether this week or not. Shavuot Tov, everybody.
Good to have. <laughs>